0: Feminist groups are very divided about this movie, and I've been attacked by some feminist groups because basically a lot of the women who come out of the Women Against Porn movement tell me that I'm soft-peddling prostitution, and those women are also saying that the women who work as prostitutes are automatically victims, but I found very much the opposite.
1: Hello, 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 and welcome to the 10th episode Little anniversary. It is anniversary, the 10th episode of Conversations. I'm Eliana and I'm joined here. Hey Patrick, hi. Hi, Patrick. So, you chose Working Girls. Would you like to talk a little bit about why you chose this film?
0: Yeah. I must admit, I didn't know Lizzie Borden, the director, until a year ago or so. When she came to Berlin, that is where I'm currently located, and she came for a few Q&As and screenings of her film, yeah, she was a very enthusiastic, very generous person with her time and with the things she was willing to share. And one got a sense that she yeah, is really still fully engaged with these conversations that Working Girls and her other films like Born in Flames still bring to the table and the house. How they still feel fresh and feel like time hasn't gone on so which in a way is good and bad (laughs) and we might talk about that later but yeah i was really blown away by her two films that i saw last year working girls and born in flames unfortunately i didn't make it to see her first film that is more like experimental film regrouping and that has very apparently was picked up by criterion but so far it hasn't been released and that is I think also for a reason that we might talk about as well later. But yeah, that is a film I really regret to have not seen. But yeah, I can I can just say I was so surprised how progressive, how early these films, if not made statements, then at least fueled the discussion on feminism and also just represented experiences and represented just ways of life that for 1986, which is where when Working Girls was shot and equally so Born in Flames in 1983, they would not have been imaginable to be screened in mainstream cinema. So yeah, Lizzie Borden, I think, such an interesting filmmaker and i hope that because she's still around and she's still looking to realize projects and i just hope uh, that there is more to come now in the future that she through the restorations of her work becomes more popular again in Mm. culture in general
1: thanks to you i only had heard of her work right after you had seen her films and it's very, very interesting because she takes us into 1980s New York. I mean, the 80s, what, what a time to be living in, honestly. We have financial crisis of the 70s. We have the end of the Vietnam War. We have the early just events of what was happening. Let's say we have the first computer we have in the 80s. Reagan America. Reagan America. We have... Back to morals. <laughs> so 80s in New York, 80s in general. But before we get into the 80s, let's first start with Khan in 1986. So in 1986, we have a selection of films that are premiering. I mean, Lizzie Borden's Working Girls was in the director's fortnight for the Kenzan at that time, was réalisateur, but now it's cinéaste. And there are so many, so many big names that appear whenever one thinks of film, independent film making or filmmakers. We have in competition that year, Andrei Tarkovsky, The Sacrifice, Scorsese's After Hours. Yeah, Ooh.
0: One of his few comedies. If you think of a Scorsese, you don't really think of After Hours. And I think that's a film that's not so much on people's radar. Yeah, even now.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim Jarmusch is down by law.
0: Yeah, like a cult classic these days, I think.
1: Robert Altman's Fool for Love.
0: Nagisa Oshima's Max Mon Amour. I have to say, I, I saw that lineup and I saw a lot of names, but I must say I barely saw any of these films that are there and that is not really limited to the competition but even the other sections in this year as well so I can't really comment on the quality of that year but I think there were a lot of there were a few standouts like the Tarkovsky I think that's considered a masterpiece and the there were out of competition films that I think all point at the differences to like how this section works nowadays, at least to some extent. I honestly feel like a film like The Color Purple by Spielberg, they would just have that in competition these days. I, I feel like they they would not have that out of competition, even though arguably we have the Scorsese, but this is for different reasons. There was for marketing and how to promote that film. Yeah, I think Scorsese maybe also, I don't know if at this age he is still willing to compete in that competition. I, I don't know if he's up to that. I feel like this is a film that might just be scheduled in the competition these days. Out of competition, we also have films by Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. That is sort of, that reminds us of Venice (laughs) this year. We have Michael, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger film, A Matter of Life and Death, that is now considered one of the best film of British cinema. So also strange to see that out of competition there. And we have Orson Welles, I guess we cannot say last film because there were... There was, for instance the other side of the wind that was restored a few years ago and was finished. But this was then his last film, Don Quixote, and the screening that was shown at Cannes. There was only forty five minutes. So and there were a lot of legal disputes about the rights of that film and about the film stock, like who who has the rights for this film stock, who owns this uh, later, that was really such a mess. The film we talk about today, Lizzie Borden's Working Ghost, that played in the director's Fortnite. So the uh, kanzen back then, the realisateur. And we have Chantal Ackermann there with her musical comedy, Golden 80s. That is also like the Scorsese, more like against type, like more like a counterintuitive title. We have the first Spike Lee movie, and that's interesting because Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, the camera he used, that was actually used later for Working Girls. So there was also this like passing on from one filmmaker to the other in New York back then. We have a film by Wojciech Haas, Memoirs of a Sinner, and I haven't seen that film, but I have read the book back then at college, and... That's a very interesting book by J- James Hogg. It's like in the gothic mood and in the gothic context. It's very fun. But in the *An saint we have the great Jane Campion show. So many films there. It's, <laughs> it's somewhat incredible there. And I think that has to do with her first recognition, basically, international. Because these films were... Not all new, but they were screened for the first time, like a bigger audience. And I mean, she's she from Australia or New Zealand? New Zealand, okay. Yeah, so (laughs) you had to travel the globe basically to show your films back then.
1: Yeah, no, I I think it's um, very lovely to see a few female directors in the competition. Well, not in the competition, in the selection in general. Yeah, in the
0: because pool because I think again there's no women in the co- like there's no woman in the competition.
1: Also, to even have Chantal Ackerman because I suppose there are some people who might have made an association between the film that we are discussing today and Chantal Ackerman's very well her masterpiece Jean Dillman, 23, qui du Commerce, 1080, Bruxelles. Yeah, okay. this film.
0: No one will ever say that.
1: Jandilman, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which she came out made in, in it which year? seventy-five. Mm. So that's eleven years prior to working girls, and I think it also very much engaged in a type of cinema that might be considered well, that is considered in some slow cinema that Lizzie Borden has also said was not something that she appreciated at the time, but has since grown to appreciate um, this work because both of them deal with thematically uh, sex
0: work. Yeah. The way I read it, I don't know, um, was more like that she didn't see the similarities to her work so much. Mm -hmm. Because it's also a very, very slow movie, right? While Lizzie Borden's film is more in the vein of comedy, if dark comedy. But I mean, John Deereman is also a dark comedy, but Mm -hmm. it turns more to like a drama than to comedy, yes. Also, just when we think about the speed, right—the tempo, the pace.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also very much an internal uh,
0: exploration.
1: Yeah, an internal exploration and an internal empowerment, an internal rebellion that the character of Jean Gilman experiences versus the one. So when we even talk about working girls, we'll soon get into this. But just that it's not even really about prostitution as identity, but rather as a form of labor.
0: Right. Yeah, just to wrap the Khan section up, I think we should mention the Palme d'Or winner. There was The Mission by Roland Joffe, and he's known for The Killing Fields, that was released two years before, about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And here, The Mission, yeah, it's about missionaries. Yeah, reminded me just, if looking at the premise, reminded me of Scorsese's silence. Yeah, but I think no one really talks about this film anymore. It's not in the discourse. So, yeah, a Palme d'Or winner that was, if not forgotten, then at least it's not on people's radar these days anymore. And, yeah, the this was conferred, the prize was conferred by Sidney Pollack, who was the jury president of that year. I serve. Great filmmaker, Lino Broca, huh. Philip French, and this is interesting. So, Philip French was a film critic, and our friend of the show, Urku, uh, who once was part of our show, she, I think, a few months ago or so tweeted that oh, it is a bit strange that these days film critics are not really part of juries anymore. So, it's nice to see that there was, at a time, there was, was totally normal for film critics to be there as well. And I think it would also, if you just look at other film-related professions, right, like costume designers and all these people who are more like in the second or third row, if you think of recognition in the film world, I think it would be nice, not just for representation, but also to maybe give us... Providers with different viewpoints and maybe don't make these juries always so predictable in that sense. We also have Sonia Braga, who, one year before, had her great film *Kiss of the Spider Woman*, where she was the eponymous Spider Woman, and István Szabó, the great Hungarian filmmaker, who, among others, made *Mephisto*. But yeah. That was just to wrap the con section up. Or do we have something else to say about this con? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: So it's lovely to see that there are some female filmmakers somehow getting to con. Still much more to come about. I believe this past year, what there were three or four female filmmakers who are in competition. Right. But let's talk about Lizzie Borden and her emergence. In some sense, she's a mythological woman because she shares the name with a late 19th century serial axe killer who was known for killing her father with um, the little rhyme, little ditty. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. And so... It is said that she's born in the 1950s, the filmmaker that we're talking about, Lizzie Borden. However, it's a bit unclear whether some sources say 1958, some say 1950. However, it is known that she was born as Linda Elizabeth Borden in Detroit, Michigan. And around the age of 11, she decided to adopt the name Lizzie Borden because she felt that at the time, the best way that she could rebel was by changing her name. So... Lizzie Borden went to. Uh, she wanted to be an artist when she was when she was young. She mm-hmm. wanted to go to NYU, and um, she wound up going to the one of the Seven Sister schools in the states, Wesley College, and there she studied art history. She got a BFA in art history and was simultaneously trying to become a painter. But she found that it was very difficult for her to actually create and critique at the same time. and She says that in her, in the back of her head, she always heard someone saying, ah, but someone's already done this. Someone's already done that. And this was quite influential on her own filmmaking process as she refused to go to school to formally learn how to make films. But due to her art critic work, so she wrote in the 70s for Art Forum, and she still continues to write for Art Forum occasionally today on many of the emerging artists at the time and this allowed her to just be in, in a in a form of community where you are not even community, but just I suppose near artists and those who are influential, such as Yvonne Rayner, Vito Acconci, Susan Seidelman, Susan Seidelman, Betty Gordon, Betty Gordon, Dan Bold Bigelow, Catherine Bigelow, Richard Serra, et etc. And these were all artists I mean contemporary art is technically contemporary art is still contemporary art since the 1980s which is about 40 45 years almost till 43 43 years ago and um, yeah perhaps yeah
0: I think it's important what you say about her being an art critic because that also sort of gives us a point of reference why her work is so self-reflective Right. We have this notion that all these scenes have been meticulously developed, you know, and they underwent a lot of rewriting, uh- on and on and that's why sometimes you feel like okay this is not just facilitating, facilitating your immersion into the scene but it also makes you reflect on what enables such a scene to exist and how this works in the context of the time of the political context so so I feel like it's never just you know it's never just immersion it's always also reflection her filmmaking and this is greatly to do with Jean-Luc Godard as well, right?
1: Yeah, I believe upon seeing Godard films, she realized that, you know, you could have a story, but you could also be saying something on top of it. And this falls in the type of a film as essay and essay films category. And and she was also very much influenced by these other, so Yvonne Rayner, contemporary dancer, who also made video installations. Vito Acconci, who often dealt with public and private spaces, as well as testing and displaying the vulnerability of men. Richard Serra, who would also challenge what it means to have a public sculpture or installation. But at this time period, we have a lot of people and a lot of discourse on what the body is, what public is, what private is because of the economic situation, the whole entire world is changing and everything. Yeah, and of
0: course, uh, second wave feminism yes, as well. Yes,
1: and second wave feminism. So it was very influential for her to understand how video work could be implemented in the gallery space, which is not unlike how what we spoke about in terms of timing Liang in the previous episode. And so she took that and went on to, I suppose, make her we haven't talked about it. But you mentioned it earlier. But I guess progressively, just regrouping, and in '76, which then, because due to the talents, they were not happy with their representation, was hidden from the public eye for about four years. And she cheekily says that she it was literally in her closet. Yeah, a uh,
0: sort of also a testament to how she conceives of filmmaking it's very collaborative i think you cannot deny her her signature in these films you can clearly tell okay this is a lizzie borden film definitely but i think the way she works is when it comes to the script for instance there's a script but very much so like uh perhaps we talked about, in one of our episodes, we talked about Valeska Grisebach. And here it works somewhat similarly that the talent is really asked to contribute and to contribute ideas. And then you find something more on set. But for her, in Ellen case, the most important part is the editing. at mm-hmm. the
1: end. Yes.
0: And mm-hmm. the editing is also a f- fun story as well, right? Because... In her New York loft, she had her own editing table. What is this particular one called again? Yeah, Steamback, exactly. Yeah. So she, as she often referred to, she had her own, she had the means of production in her own hands.
1: Yes. And she would rent it out to all the other artists at the time, or filmmakers, or video installation artists who were making something for $25 for the day. And yeah, when you talk about this, um, when you talk about this method of trying to collaborate together, I think she has drawn a difference between what she believes is inductive and deductive creation of a film. Deductive meaning having the script and inductive, I suppose, the way that she sometimes works with the, the collaboration and of finding people so for Born in Flames in 83, this sort of came about from another inductive sort of community, like she was thinking, OK, well, let me find and think of what is the type of society or that I would like to portray and who would be leading that. And in her mind, it was very clear that it would be black women, specifically black lesbian women, who would be taking the lead in creating revolution mm. at the and she realized that she did not know any uh, black lesbians. And so she started to go to bars to meet them. And that's where she found eventually the revolutionary in her, the protagonist, um, Adelaide, who is. Don't, this is so bad. I don't have any of the actors' names, <laughs> I realized.
0: But I guess that's also part of the point, not to. <laughs> I mean, it's of course great to know the actors, but it's also part of the bigger concepts that no voice really stands out and no no voice can represent the entire movement. Instead, it's sort of diverse, diversified, and you have all these different stratums. Maybe stratums is the wrong word because that goes from top to bottom, but you have all these different Angles from which to look at feminism and to look at the contemporary politics. And uh, it should also be noted, you said she didn't know any black lesbian women, but I mean, she didn't know any black women, you know, like period. And it's fun how in Born in Flames, there's, there's a viewpoint that The women that more or less represent certain strands of black feminism, they make fun of white upper class feminism Mm -hmm. as well in that film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and perhaps about the process there as well, because I think...
1: Due to the collaborative script writing process, in fact, when we look at Born in Flames, we realize that there is no one who's attributed to having written the film Born in Flames because She was taking from all of the different groups who are represented in the film. And actually, this caused a bit of a bureaucratic issue with uh, the Writer guilds, the Writers Guild of America, when they insisted that she did not have a script for that film. So in, and, and she spent ages and ages and ages editing because like you mentioned, she really enjoys the editing process. And then a couple of years later, when she decided to start working on Working Girls, she made sure that she actually had written a script, even though I believe there are still very much elements of collaboration that are involved, but it was a bit, it was tighter. And I don't know, but also it came from another source too, if you would like to. No, talk about that if that. Last...
0: Maybe before we go into that, yeah. just this of course was necessitated by you know financial hardship to some degree. So the reason why Born in Flames took so long was that she would film whenever she had money. So there there would be a shoot just if new dollars came in, and there would be much like we see it in Working Girls the money would go directly into a creative project. That's why it took five years. And that's also why, having gone through this sort of process, she thought, or she felt that uh, for working girls, she wants to do something more contained that she can actually control and that she has a stronger sense of beginning and end. And we see that maybe uh, reflected in the structure of that film as well. Mm yeah and born in flames itself, the film that sort of reflects this entire process too it's about yeah different feminist movements that try to work together at a time that is set in the future in a future where the democratic revolution has sort of taken place it's the it's a social democratic republic. <laughs> But not so many things have changed for the better. So we, women are still sort of harassed on the street and they don't, have, they don't have the same political rights and the same political representation. It's not really reflected in the law as well. And all these women from different fractions of... of society, they all try to find ways into making it a more democratic society. And instead of all sort of binding them together into one voice, Lizzie Borden rather, in a sort of intersectional way, like (laughs) avant la lettre, yeah, Mm -hmm. the term hasn't really coined
1: which was coined in 89 yeah
0: yeah there one can see it was ahead of its time because it already considered all these different viewpoints that feminism especially if we think about the 90s early 2000s was often accused of being oblivious to Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i mean second wave feminism really marginalized Women of color and women who had different sexual orientations um, and born in flames essentially tried to see all these differences and find a way to collectively speak to some empowerment that could be felt across all these groups, if possible. And I think what you say is absolutely correct in terms of we have this future after this democratic socialist democratic revolution has occurred. The future is not very unlike even perhaps arguably our present today. And that sometimes is the horror of imagining whatever the future is, when the future is the same as what we have. And um, yes, in, in a way, she also has said this thing about this film that even though it emerged from this collaborative without a script process, it has in some sense a three act structure and it's unified by the death, potential suicide or murder of the most revolutionary of the leaders and that becomes the catalyst which unites the front as they go and they try to conquer the phallic symbols of capitalism.
0: Right and the revolution is transmitted via radio here.
1: Yes yeah. and that was really lovely to see and just because I think it's so wonderful Before we move on, I just wanted to say that one line that I really liked is when early in the film, the revolutionary Adelaide is trying to get the Phoenix radio host Honey on board. And Honey says, I'd like to say yes, but I'm working with some other woman right now and I wouldn't want to commit myself for them. So maybe we can talk some other time, okay? And I think this is just such a lovely way of showing that you are in solidarity with a cause, but you cannot commit. It's just the loveliest—not rejection, part off, but just still.
0: Yeah, because an openness in a way, about it. they're all working on the same thing, but in the different projects, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is maybe more to the notion of like as people conceive of multiculturalism—that you allow each culture to exist in themselves but together they all can form something that yeah that doesn't annihilate or that doesn't take away from that individual standpoint from that different from that individual perspective Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i like that too very much that an aspect of it from there one way of talking about it Transition from the one project to the other. I talk, talked about this desire to make something that is more self contained in Lizzie Borden. So she actively sought that out. But also, uh, there's, there's one shot in Born in Flames that is penis that condom is rolled on to and Lizzie Borden claims that this is one of the initial moments for the idea of <laughs> working girls because the way she intercuts this one scene with other scenes is that it is in the context of labor. It's about like everyday life. And this is very much the subject of working girls. Maybe one or two more things about this context in which all this emerged. You already talked about the community, the artistic community back then.
1: There it was, was a highly fractured in a sense too. I mean, everyone's exactly. doing their own thing. You have Keith Haring starting graffiti on the subways. You have
0: that's exactly the spirit, but it was also collaborative. So even though people were not all involved with one project at the time, but many different, they would help out each other and they would all sort of, if remotely, they would all know each other. And many of these people were associated with the No Wave movement. That was sort of, as you can infer from the, from the name of a counterculture to uh, the new wave back then so a less commercial approach to art and culture perhaps and they all often met in the uh, in the mud club that was located in Tribeca because when we talk about the second wave feminism I think it's important to mention uh, Shulamith Firestone who's The dialectic of sex in 1970 is benchmark a milestone for the feminist movement and and also when it comes to context the the aspect of gentrification right that New York under like especially the lower East Side at that Mm -hmm. time
1: yeah following the financial crisis in the 70s the emergence of crack cocaine which which was just substances very addictive. And at the same and cheaper, time, of course. and cheaper, and was circulated. And we have also this idea of the sexual revolution, which is very difficult to talk about within this context. Branching off from second wave feminism, we had the sex wars, which were certain women who were pro-pornography, and then the women who were against pornography. Yeah, because that's very important. Because they believe that it was tied into degrading the traditional values of the woman in the domestic sphere, the women that had fought for first and second wave feminism, essentially, and that it would lead to an increase in violence. And this violence was in some ways present because there were there was a very high crime rate, but it's not right to, to associate those two together.
0: Yeah, but it's also interesting how this sort of, I, I think even these feminists, uh-huh. Many of them that were against porn and against prostitution would not have voted for Reagan, for instance. But by antagonizing sex workers and porn actors and so on, they sort of subscribed to the Reagan idea of new morals.
1: I think it was New York, too, was filled with sex shops and prostitution. And during this time of the sexual revolution, AIDS had just been identified. HIV had also been identified. And in this whole entire confusion, I don't want to defend anyone here, but just that it was a time of crime and violence and disease that seemed to be spreading from sexual contact. And thus, very slippery and easy slope that I think a lot of people took to just simply go, oh, sex is bad. And this, of course, luckily now, 40 years later, we're able to, through technology and science, medical advancement, able to sort of distance this. But the moral idea still remains. I mean, it comes from religion. But of course, we have prostitution is known as the oldest profession in in, in the world. So perhaps, you. Know, I mean, honestly, prostitution probably dates religion in some sense.
0: It is muddled subject. Yep. In it is way. a
1: very muddled
0: subject. <laughs> yeah. So back to working girls. or first <laughs> we really enter working girls. Now I was, as I said, we have this transition from this shot in Born in Flames, the condom that is rolled onto the penis, and then we are now really inside a depiction of the labor that is involved on a daily basis of pursuing this job what is work goals it's a depiction of yeah middle class brothel in in new york we the film is really primarily set inside we have three locations i would say we have the apartment of our protagonist molly but the apartment we see maybe for two or three minutes in the entire film then we see her we see her biking to her to her job and this biking i thought back to born in flames where we have the bike brigade Mm -hmm. (laughs) that would come up whenever a woman would be harassed on the street and then the female bike brigade would come up and whistle at the perpetrator to (laughs) make him go. And yeah, after a short bike ride, we are again in domestic environment. And this I found very peculiar, just this domestic environment now is the brothel. But it looks really like a loft, and why does it look like a loft? Because it was Lizzie Borden's loft at the time, so she used her own apartment and yeah, sort of made some arrangements. So it looks like something that would be used by professionals,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, uh, I by think professional a, sex workers.
1: Yeah, I think a set. I mean, maybe in a in a loose in its loose understanding of what a set is was created for this from her loft. And so there were some moving walls. And of course, I suppose she made some areas look more accommodating, I think, of the drink station and then the collective couch area where we have a division of the upstairs and the downstairs. Exactly Downstairs, they don't talk about prices. Upstairs, they talk about prices and bring the clients there. And there's also a separation between what happens upstairs and what happens downstairs, what is discussed as well. Yeah, that's and, good. And um, it all
0: has more like the air of an office, right? Uh-huh. With the phone constantly ringing there as yes. well. Yes. Yeah. Someone who has to be present exactly. to receive these calls. And perhaps you want to talk about, because that is something that you found in your research that I didn't find about, Lizzie, Burton, uh, about uh, Lizzie Borden and her own connection to the story, because I mentioned the apartment of our protagonist, Molly. Mm-hmm. Molly is like former... Yale as student. She graduated much like Lizzie Borden in art history. And for her, I think it's literature Literature, as Mm -hmm. well. And yeah, could you talk about the connection there?
1: It's quite interesting in a little bit of research that we found it was exactly as you said that this often when Lizzie Borden talks about why the idea for Working Girls emerged, she sort of states that had come to her attention that there were many <clears throat> women who were doing the sort of middle class apartment prostitution. But there is also an additional interview done by another gaze, which in which she says that Working Girls was also somewhat a true story and it was a story for her. And the opening sequence, where we see a white woman, what well, we see Molly in bed with, a black woman who was her partner, that that was her and honey, she has said in one interview. I do understand in ways why she wouldn't necessarily go around repeating that this is the origin, but I do find that that's quite lovely since she often does say to emerging filmmakers, because she's a very loving presence and a very encouraging woman in general and very positive, very optimistic in a sense. And
0: Which, Given her career trajectory is all but self-evident, right? Uh That she would still be so, yeah, upright. Yes,
1: yeah. And she often just encourages filmmakers to look at their own self, at their own stories to see what they can bring up, at their own lives and reflections. But do you think that this is part of the reason why she doesn't
0: do that so often? So the film is not just, you know, known as her story,
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, honestly, I would think that that is also for the better because what she does in Working Girls, we have one day in the life of a woman who does this sort of work. And I think it's an amalgamation and a type of, it's not a judgmental one, but it's sort of an anthropological look at, these are all the types of clients that come in. These are the types of other women who work there that you will encounter. And these are the tasks that were given. And this is the madame. And the madame is the one who is going to ruin it all, but also presents that power dynamic, which ultimately validates the work as work, but also brings into another level of what it would like the economics and the labor side of what it means to actually be doing such work with such a, a boss that's quite, unpleasant and that this too was, is a reality and uh, the boss Lucy is is uh, not unlike any other bosses but uh, I, I think we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later perhaps essentially Lizzie Borden has once said that one of the nicest receptions of her work that she got was when a man came up to her after a showing of Working Girls and said I used to have a boss just like this yeah yeah and um, yeah, yes and
0: this sort of is a testament to the film not depicting so much prostitution or sex work but just a capitalist system right and how how this works yeah with Lucy being really like a neoliberal uh, boss that mm-hmm. purportedly just wants the best for all her workers, but of course she is the one who who has the surplus value? She, oh my goodness, she has. Yes. It's all given to her basically, and she owns the means of production. That is, apart from the bodies of the females, that's also just the apartment there and the, and the location. And
1: yeah, if you want to talk more about this right now, but I find that even her character is also viewed in a way that everything is seen as part of a larger system uh, of of how this might work and i find that that contributes to the characters both having dimension and also feeling slightly flat as if they could be any type of worker in such a system but at the same time that they also are neither victim but they are victim and perpetrator of that very right. system at the and thus lucy uh, when they talk about lucy it's almost as if when they're talking about in the theater play you know the character that You're always waiting for to arrive. The the girls, there are three of them, they wonder, where is she? Where is she? Where is she? Oh, she used to do work. She used to do this type of work as well, but she hasn't done it in a while. Now she just owns a couple of places and she has her boyfriend. And then we learn that her boyfriend is, she's really the mistress to her boyfriend. Exactly. So he's Um, married.
0: and and In a sense, you you could even argue that uh, when we think about hierarchy here, he is at the very top of it because she is dependent on him as well not not so much uh, when it comes to I don't know like income but she wants all these things from him as well she wants to have affection expressed through gifts and mm-hmm. money
1: and this is played out comedically yeah as well as if almost too I don't know soft Address it because I do think we're not to think that this character should should really resonate with us, the audience, but to show that even though she only likes two things in life, money and sex and realize that those two things could be tied together, mm-hmm. that she too perhaps lacked something that she's not getting. And I think there is that sense that each one of these women also has something that they that they want, that their job allows them or enables them to get simply by the fact that it's money that they're going to be getting in order to get closer to whatever it is that they that they desire. Mm.
0: Yeah. And maybe just talking about how this project came to life as well, we should say that this is a very low budget film. As you might expect, it's about two hundred thousand dollars. It's set at some you know, in at some in some sources, it's said to be less, like 100,000, 110,000. But I think at some point, the production wasn't quite finished yet, and she needed more money, so it amounted in total to two hundred thousand, which still, of course, was not a lot. At the time it didn't have a lot of um, like explicit nudity there, but it was eno- enough to give it an no rating you know like a an x rating i think it's called and which is also a shame because i think lizzie borden cut out certain scenes to get better rating <laughs> for this film but it was still apparently too too juicy for for what is the, the association of like what is what is this association but in, in any case it was x rated and So, this is a film that, as we said, played at Cannes at the Kanzan and was picked up by Miramax. And Miramax, we all know, is the production company of Harvey Weinstein. But back then, he wasn't the big name that he would become, especially in the 90s and early 2000s. Back then, this was one of the first. Yeah. I don't know if we can talk of a financial success, but it was at least received well that this film was picked up and it had a sort of um, run through different festivals afterwards. It played at Sundance next year in 1987. And for us, I think we might talk about later about Harvey Weinstein, because if we talk about her later career, I think that will be important. But for us... It is most important now that this was restored, the film Working Girls in 2021 by Criterion. And I think with the aid of UCLA and yeah, it was bought as a sort of three three package deal. So, and it's, it's interesting to see that it is sometimes said that Those are her three films, Regrouping, Born in Flames and Working Girls. There is at least one more film, but this is left out because then she tried to be part of the studio system. But we will talk about that later. i love most in life for sex and money it's just that i didn't know until much later that they were connected so yeah back to working girls so we have the premise we talked about the premise and yeah we just follow molly now in the brothel throughout the course of the day It's just one day and the day starts out to be just one shift, but she's talked into by Lucy more or less forced into a double shift. And this also makes us reflect perhaps the structure of the film that the first half is more lightly comedic and the second half turns a bit darker, which is also accentuated through the lighting of the film, but just inherently in the scenes as well that become more grim, that become, you know, because uh, the Johns, and to so, me that's a new term, and we have to talk about language as well, the Johns, so the clients, um, they are more like more like dummies, you know, in the first half, they are like naive guys, they're like almost just goofy, you know, like mm-hmm. goofy guys often, like old as well like above 50 often i would say and they have this sort of weird like almost ovuncular relationship when they talk mm-hmm. uh, with the girls and they all secretively make fun of them you know when they are not around and nicknames are very really funny yeah, the nicknames are funny so, but in this first half it's all more or less fun and in the second half we also see very much the downsides of uh, the profession as well to a larger or lesser extent that is up to debate, but there is definitely a shift in tone. I think.
1: Yeah, I'm. I would say the first half is a bit lighter too, but there's also the sense that, I mean, the, the three women are together. They're asking where Lucy is, and they're talking a little bit about what they've been up to, what it is that they want to do, what they're trying to achieve. We learn that Dawn has to is going to. Is it Dawn or is it... Perhaps. Dawn is doing I what? Is, is trying to, is, go in, is in school and she's trying exactly, to get an essay Dawn, yeah. done. We learn.
0: I love Dawn, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. because Dawn <laughs> brings always the comedy in there. She's more like, how can you describe her?
1: She brings comedy and she brings this youthful attitude that's a bit rebellious And But is that of a woman who is, you know, you get the sense that she's there for the money like anyone else. Who knows why she's going through school. Maybe she's a little bit, she's had some maybe issues going through school and that she needs a little bit of extra help. But she's very honest and she knows what she does and doesn't want. Very blunt, right? Very blunt, yes.
0: And also cartoonish. Yeah. cartoonish and we later learn also that she worked the street at some point okay. and i think this is important because as in like in the way of in the manner of born in flames where lizzie borden tries to represent all these different fractions here as well we see different trajectories that lead into this middle class brothel
1: okay. and um I was going to say something but I forgot.
0: Maybe about the other girls. I don't know.
1: Dawn. Uh, yes. And I think Dawn is also one of the first perhaps to say while well, they're all together and we hear that Fantasy Fred is going to be mm-hmm. arriving or whoever it is. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Someone is right. arriving first. Yeah. And I think she just essentially says, oh, I don't want to mm-hmm. work. I don't want to have sex with them right now. Or I don't want to do this.
0: Yeah. And I think these sort of comments also are used in the script as an interruption because otherwise it might seem like more like class trip or something, at least in the first part where we feel like if they are among themselves, so like if the women are among themselves, they have a lovely attitude toward each, toward each other. They are very warm and they share jokes and they share food as well i think the food scene especially if when they share lunch together it almost seems like just friends you know just friends who hang out i think that also has around a joint at some point as well
1: yes and they get in trouble first <laughs> exactly yeah and and yeah there's some insights into their personal lives as well and the emotional tribulations so they have Of the three women, Molly is in a relationship with a woman at home, which we've discussed. Dawn is in a relationship for five years with a boyfriend who is not aware that she also does this type of line of work. And in fact, that's actually how she enters by saying that she lied about the address because her boyfriend insisted on dropping her off. And this sort of throws her into a bit of a frenzy. Oh, but that's so good
0: because I think this film really immerses you into that even though we don't see that scene play out but she says so she has to go into that building in this office building to pretend working there and then this boyfriend wouldn't go you know so she's sort of trapped in there and i find it interesting how even there you have this entrapment of women to to the inside right uh she has to wait until he drives off to then return to her actual workplace that he doesn't know about.
1: Yeah. And in a different sense of entrapment, we have Gina too, who has always been upfront with the type of work she does with her partner. However, in this idea of, well, if he loves me, then he should be able to accept the fact that I do do this line of work. And this comes crumbling to a bit of an emotional moment too, where it seems that she is no longer with her partner as well but it's all done in a very sort of rapid sense and then we learn that Molly has not revealed to her partner that she is doing that sort of work because she knows that it would probably affect their relationship
0: Yeah and I think uh, this film also makes you think about what this so-called faithfulness is right because Dawn claims that in these five years that she's been with her boyfriend she has never okay. been unfaithful okay. and i think this is so great that this is a part of this of course the boyfriend might think of it differently but it makes you consider how you can look at this work right and i am sure we find a lot of people says this Uh, sympathetic to that notion Mm -hmm. that you can totally divide this sort of
1: yeah love and sex yeah or desire between those two Mm. as well or even just a division perhaps of actions yeah whether this is considered cheating whether that is considered cheating and yeah i
0: think i talked about immersion a few times and i think what i found most impressive with regard to this film it's only 90 minutes long about 90 minutes long but it's so dense and it's so packed with scenes that often work at least on two levels we have the story but we also have the aspects that point to society as a whole and that point to the zeitgeist time so well, one of the very early scenes in the apartment, like in the brothel in the loft, is we see—is it Molly who inserts a diaphragm? Yes. Yeah, and this was actually a scene that was opposed by the Motion Picture Association of America. So they the, the rating yeah, system. Mm. They they did didn't want that in there, and it familiarizes you early on with the sort of philosophy or the stance of or at least one of the stances of the film because when like first of all we see how these women interact right like it's like another woman is it? i don't know who, who it is but another woman comes in sees her doing that and they are comfortable with each other It's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going, I'm going. No, no, it's like she stays around and they chat a bit, you know, and they talk about why they are doing it, why isn't she just taking the pill, you know, and she says that she doesn't want to fuck up her hormones for like two... Two shifts a week. Two shifts
1: a week, exactly. and Well, I I think just shows the logistic aspect of what is needed on the job, in terms of this is a job and thus should be treated professionally as one. And in order to professionally ensure the integrity of one's body, one's hygiene, one, if you're a woman, I mean, we have contraceptive methods that emerged early on, but they're not very reliable. So even the diaphragm itself is not the most reliable contraceptive method. And that's also just to prevent pregnancy. Primarily, it doesn't necessarily prevent you from getting other diseases. Yeah, and to me,
0: that's part of what makes the scene so strong is that it is not a Mm. very reliable contraception. So her doing that, first of all, I think often, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's better to have medical assistance doing that, no? To have it inserted correctly?
1: No. So the diaphragm is actually a device that can be inserted before sex in the same way that now we have something that's similar, a menstrual cup or a menstrual like disc that has been invented, which works in a different sense now. But I believe then they were not very comfortable. They were probably much more rigid and often would be they would be inserted with a cream called 9. that would be a spermicide, which would kill the sperm essentially. But you're absolutely right; it's not protective on other levels. For
0: yeah, and, and, and in any case, if it is not inserted correctly, then it doesn't work. Yes. So it's, uh, it, the F is, her it, doing that, Molly doing that, also points at the precar like the precar the precarity of this right of this entire undertaking <laughs> that. If she is doing a mistake here, then it will cost her immensely, especially yeah. at the time.
1: Especially to because we also find out over the course of the day that some Johns wear condoms and some do not. If they don't want to wear a condom, they pay an extra 25. And this seems like such a small fee yeah. for such a big risk on, on behalf of a woman's body. And we do have other episodes of this. We have this of just speaking because we're going continue on the logistics of what needs to be done for health and hygiene. There is a bit of a routine every time they come in that starts with the almost seductive opening break- icebreaker of can I get you a drink to once the John has decided to stay and that he would like to pick a woman. They go upstairs. And they are told, or it is taught, that they hand them a towel, and they say, "Please make yourself completely comfortable." And logistically, this poses a bit of a, as a nuisance because some Johns don't always get fully naked after they're told to become to to make themselves fully comfortable, and others also not even that keen on hygiene. But there's also
0: Do you know what that function is as well of that phrase? Make yourself comfortable. Do you know what purpose that serves as well? Oh, tell me. It's to identify police officers, you know. Uh. When they don't get undressed, then you might be suspicious of them. Oh, that's actually quite... Yeah, yeah. So that's part of the method here as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know that. That's quite... Cool. (laughs) That's not the right word to use. But But it's good
0: that this is part of the film, right?
1: Yeah, it's good that that's part of the film. It didn't occur in the film in this in this way, but that's interesting. I think there's
0: probably still much or a few things in there that you don't actually recognize if you're. And I guess we both have no exposure really to that world. There might still be certain codes or something that we are not able to identify. Uh, yeah. Like this one, right?
1: That yeah. Might I mean, e-
0: easily slip through.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are other, if you wanted to go through some of the other phrases that were used that are just like yeah. little yeah, language. I mean, we have do Greek. Oh, yeah. Which is anal.
0: Which, you know, like looking at it in the knowledge of it seems so obvious, but... Had no idea what that means, it's, so I had to look it up.
1: I mean, oh, do you want to do Greek? <laughs> <laughs> this the fact that it becomes a type of euphemism, even though it's very maybe clear because going back to Greek antiquity and
0: yeah, yeah. yeah but um, next to language, uh-huh. we will find a few more things. But also, when it comes to this immersion part and this like everyday life routine, I liked, for instance, that they. Borden and her talent made it a point to get a bit unnerved about Hickey, right? Like, if there's a Hickey, of course, that takes away from your chances of getting, it's not a gig, but, you know, being, being chosen by the man, which in itself is also something we should talk about, right? It's almost like a casting that's going on there. Like, once the John enters, he finds... Most of the time, he finds two to four women or so hanging around, often three. Then he's to pick one of them.
1: You know, I honestly thought if this were an evening party, this Lucy, when she does arrive, does such a lovely job actually introducing everyone. And it would be lovely, actually, if you go to any <laughs> party, someone just like, oh, hi, have you met Patrick? Oh, have you met Eliana? This is a, a one-liner of what they do. And so then we have this selection process that goes on based off of this one-liner and sometimes on two or three instances, we have Johns that come in who are known for always taking the new girls. We have the arrival of two new girls.
0: One black woman might not be new to the profession, but new in that brothel in any case. And there is one woman who seems to be quite new to the entire profession Yes, and doesn't know the codes, doesn't know how to behave in the situation, feels uncomfortable. One of the scenes that really stands out and it's such a small detail, but it shows you something about Molly as the character and also about the complexities that might occur at such a workplace. That is, at some point, one of the Johns doesn't want only this new woman that yeah, we don't know the name of right now, but this woman who's new to the profession. And, he wants a show. Yeah, he wants a show. Exactly. So... He gets them two up to his bed, and uh, the other woman feels uncomfortable and says,
1: "Right, we see them preparing in the bathroom, and they have yeah. a moment alone."
0: And she she says something like, uh, "I've always been afraid of dykes." Uh, you know, with Molly next to her, but Molly, we don't even see a reaction; like she's upset. You know, we don't
1: even see her face. I think we only see her hand or maybe I'm mistaken.
0: I don't know, but she immediately responds with, hey, do I look like a dyke? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's great because this shows us the complexity of Molly that she can sort of abstract from this insult. She is able to see that society is not ideal and mm-hmm. there is, you know, there is resentment in society and there is... There are a lot of phobias of different kinds and she can sort of deal with that. And I think that adds much to her character. Yep. perhaps should we talk about the relationship between the working girls and the Johns? That there is this sort of emotional labor as well. That is often, I think, unnoticed and unrecognized, but the film makes a point to highlight that. For instance, we see how the working girls have different tendencies how to how to deal with the drones and how much they are willing to share with them in you know in emotional respects, how much they interact not only physically but also you know verbally. There's, for instance, Molly, who's fine with hissing the Johns and share about their life as well. And I think what's interesting there is uh, there's this one man, for instance, where you can clearly see that for him, this means much more than just, you know, sexual release, but he actually looks forward to these occasions so he can talk about his life to her and maybe more so than to family or friends.
1: There are a few of those. I don't know which one you're actually particularly well, talking about, but I do find that a lot of the, the Johns do sense that there is an emotional connection with, the, with, with Molly because we primarily see customers, the clients, clientele that she sees over the others. But we do get a glimpse into how the others also intake their clients. Yeah,
0: yeah, and this one business guy, he says, you know, it is implied that he had some business success. It is stated, I guess. And he says, what better person to share it with? And I think this tells you something about what importance these <laughs> women play, but not so much sexually, but rather as a person to confide in or as a person to have this relationship in. And then this is sort of not recognized when you talk like, perhaps in the pay you know in the in the, in yeah. the money they make you know like mm-hmm. you on, only talk about this sort of transaction but you don't take into account these other factors that also make for the entire experience of being with a working girl
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think this is also the same in any work setting in some in some sense of course too but yes of course your your salary or your hourly rate or whatever it is that you're getting to be with a client of any kind is never reflective of however much the emotional weight of the job or the emotional weight that is imposed upon you because we do have many of these johns who come in and for a range of different reasons seem to want to connect with her there are a couple of them who propose seeing her outside of this place being the apartment and there are a few who seem i mean most of them actually i think seem to desire more i mean we have a slightly affectionate but also slightly on the borderline of affectionate and a border and just a bit deranged essentially, but Molly receives a shirt from a client and she says, well, would you look at that? I mean, last week I told him, I complimented him and I said, I liked his shirt and now he's giving it to me. (laughs) But then later on, it does seem like this same John is asking her for dating advice and on how, and getting advice on how he should possibly seduce someone in his life that he's interested in. Things are not strictly played out to really make someone seem like a bad person or a bad client. But we also have this happen with this experimental musician who comes in and presents one of the, the most maybe seductive instances that we see in, in of our clients. He's younger, he is edgier, and he talks about how he was away but was thinking about her and wants to take her away. But then he also in some ways is one of the worst types because he's I, either a I brute.
0: <laughs> certainly the worst, right? And we he see. talks about
1: designing her outside and what that would be like. And, and
0: this is very much like this pattern we know from nowadays. Like it's often shared on social media. Like the man makes the approach to a woman. And if there's rejection, yeah, I never wanted you, you dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I never want you dirty, blah blah blah, and this guy basically reacts in the same way, right? And the sort of pattern, yeah, <laughs> it's already there in nineteen eighty six, surely much before there as well,
1: you know, yeah. And and this scene is it not that actually drives her to
0: exactly, to, yep,
1: to tears
0: exactly. The first time, really, that we see her actually affected mm-hmm. because the turn also comes like the shift comes so sudden, right?
1: In a sense, it is towards the end of the film, and I believe she's already been asked to do extra work.
0: Oh, I mean, but uh, uh, you mean? with this encounter. Uh-huh. Like, in the one moment, yes. this yes. person is like, I really want to see you outside. And, and then.
1: And we have a sense, as if we're tricked too, that perhaps because we know that she's not closed off to, like we said earlier, uh, that she kisses some of the Johns. And there's even a comment made by colleague to say i don't know how you stand kissing them or how you can even do that and and Molly just retorts earlier in the film oh you know they're not all that bad i kiss the ones that i trust or something similar to that because i'm very bad verbatim but yes so even
0: there there are like gradations right there's no equal treatment or something Many other things that I would like to talk about. I think we didn't mention when we talk about all these girls, We, I think we didn't quite mention yet that they all have different aspirations. There's this one scene when they talk about what plans they have for the future. And this is, as far as I can tell, not for most of them. It's not a profession that they want to be part of all their life. It's rather like momentary. and. For instance, Molly, our protagonist, what does she pursue? What kind of career?
1: Photography. We see that in the opening sequence. It's part of her daily routine. She wakes up. I mean, I thought that this opening sequence alone was actually very well, beautifully filmed by Judy Irola, who also was known for doing the cinematography for many activist films around that period, and uh, you just get the sense of how. The domestic sphere is so tight and connected with a simple mirror in the bathroom and the opening of doors in the hallway and the routine of eating breakfast in a family of three. And Molly just spends a moment in the morning developing some of her own photography. Whose photos are they?
0: Nan Golden. Oh, really? I actually didn't... Those are Nan Golden's (laughs) photos that she provided Mm -hmm. Lizzie Borden with for the film.
1: That's sort of... Lovely. Of course, Nan Golden is has always been an, an activist. If
0: you listen to this podcast, if you are so deep into film that you know that, but uh, Nan Golden had a documentary about her last year in Venice, right?
1: All the uh, beauty and the bloodshed.
0: Yeah, by Laura Poitras,
1: who did Citizen Four.
0: Exactly. So Nan Golden, also to just people who only follow cinema, mm-hmm. might still be familiar with that name.
1: Yeah, and it's New York, seventies, eighties, yeah. as we spoke of earlier, HIV/AIDS epidemic, drug crisis, and the opiates. Basically, taking down the Sackler name and the residual pain because Nen Golden hung around a lot of artists at the time and is, Betty is very as well, for <laughs> instance, instrumental in yeah in in photographing the scene, as zeitgeist of the 80s and was active then and is, and is active now in terms of fighting for the rights of women and fighting against these large corporations. It's very depressing, but many of our friends passed away for a variety of different reasons that are either drug or virus related complications.
0: Mm -hmm. There are one or two things I still want to talk about that important to me is this exploitative environment that this brothel is, right? We talked about Lucy, but for instance, very early on, Dawn, one of the girls, Dawn, we talked about her. She complains out loud that sometimes she barely makes more money than a waiter would do. And that, of course, puts this entire endeavor into question, right? You do that, and for, for some women, that means a great deal of degradation. Not to all of them, and this is part of the film, of course, but to some, it definitely does, and some are disgusted by this and do it nonetheless. And, and don't do more than a waiter, then, of course, why are you doing this, right? And this is partly to do with Lucy and how she is always taking her share with all the Johns, all the customers, all the clients, and yeah, I I think a great motive of the film is the notebook of Molly, mm-hmm. where she writes down all the clients and she has two columns of her table. The one that she tells Lucy she has seen and then she has her other column where she inserts actually the extra hours that she doesn't talk about with Lucy. So she makes some extra money at the side. For instance, Johns can go in for an hour, but she would often claim that they only stayed half an hour so she can take the extra money to herself.
1: And all the women there are doing that. Okay. You said the motif of the notebook, but then it's the motif of also, I suppose, them throughout the whole entire film that they are tabulating, you know, in a different sense of just put down this, just put down that. The reason
0: why I said it is a motif is because it works sort of as a reminder that this is a transaction that this is work and that points to molly as being like the agent of her own life and to remind her why she's doing it it's the money so she can invest that again into her art so i think it works sort of as a motif is a it's a recurring shot of her yeah, inserting the numbers into her notebook.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and this is also keeping in mind, I don't know if you made a direct connection to this, but that these women, we talked about the depiction of the logistics of putting in diaphragm and wearing condoms, but the money to pay for those things also comes out of their own pocket. And there's a scene which in a way it's comedic, but it's also sort of tragic because it the, reflects the reality. But Molly makes a stop to the pharmacy where she has a list of things to get because she's asked all the other women if they need anything. And so she buys a lot of boxes of condoms. She buys, she fills out a prescription for someone's birth control and she gets other things and then delivers them. And the pharmacist essentially says, oh, you don't take any chances, do you? And then we have her leaving and we have for the first time that she's left, we have another scene. She's just watching people on the playground, which I thought was actually very grounding and in insertion in the film. And we see black women taking care of white children on the playground as if to present an alternative of domestic labor and just a different economy of labor and, or a service of labor in general. There were a few other things that would have been very interesting to talk about because you talked, you mentioned just now, in terms of Molly's agency. So the the, the two ways that I see this is well, um, we haven't talked about this at all, and I think it's quite confusing to talk about. But we have also as considerations of in terms of filmmaking, but how to depict a woman, male gaze, female gaze, right? Of course, these yeah. ideas of we have nudity. And nudity was very important for Lizzie Borden to include because of the nature of the work. It's to be revealing, but not to be exoticized or to sexualize, hypersexualize in the way that many other films that were blockbuster or Hollywood based were doing at the time with the bodies of women. Mm-hmm. And I do even think that a, some form of association was put together to say to sort of question how do we not sexualize a female body? And that even might include from the criterion chat with Betty Gordon and Liz Borden revealed that some even suggest that the woman be depicted from head to toe so that no fragmented or just close-ups be shown. And we do have that. I think Lizzie Borden is actually against the idea because she finds that there's a purpose for showing body parts as just body parts. Mm -hmm. But I do find that in this, I never really got the sense as well that this was exploitative in terms of the body of Molly. But back to the question of agency, I'm sorry, should be jumping around. Oh, no,
0: but maybe talking about this, I earlier mentioned that there was a scene that there were a few scenes that were deleted for the rating. And one of the scenes she really wanted to have in there was an ejaculation. And there was cut out of the film, you know, a hand handjob. We see... We see the result maybe later, but we don't see the actual yeah ejaculation. And she, she, she really wanted to have that in there because this like male masculine vulnerability is something that she wanted to have displayed in her films as well.
1: That's very interesting to me because I think I read a critique of Working Girls, which essentially was contemplating on the fact that there are no so-called money shots, which colloquially this used to, sh- to denote an ejaculation scene and they found that this was even maybe more empowering in a sense because we don't see male pleasure as depicted male pleasure. So it's interesting to know that she really wanted to see it and would probably put it in a different framework and through her editing as a moment perhaps of male vulnerability. So back to the agency question which kind of might help us wrap up a little bit here. Over the course of a day, Molly sees, I don't even know, I I didn't keep count at all. I didn't even try, but she sees a number of clients and she's asked to stay over. She's even lied to when she tries to tell her employer that she cannot do that. that She doesn't want to do that. And her employer tells her that she's called some other girls. They'll come and relieve Molly. And then at the end of the double shift that she has, Molly then Leaves, and it's highly implied that she is quitting entirely this line of work. And so, before we wrap up, let's look a little bit at perhaps race. You had a few things that you wanted to say about that.
0: Yeah, because uh, overall, I'm so positive on the film that I don't want certain things to fall off here. That I think merit mention as well. There's one point I want to critique here. That is. The Asian representation, because there are at some point these three dons, and uh, I think are Chinese.
1: Yeah, they speak actually Mandarin and Cantonese, which is not their translation of what they're saying is not present in India in the subtitles.
0: Yeah, and this sort of makes them the alien there. Yeah, they are the others, and this. Translates to what happens then upstairs. There's this one man of them, and he refuses to take a shower, even though he's urgently asked by Molly again and again if he could shower. And I think then, isn't it that he also doesn't want to wear a condom?
1: Yes, I think he doesn't want to wear a condom. And what happens is we see how Molly interacts with him based off of this. So he refuses to wear a condom and well, she refuses to mount him and winds up giving him a hand job.
0: Yeah. And then like the American film history, you have had that for a long time that Asians or Asian Americans, they were often silenced or they were limited to the sort of you know this tongue that is you know that is often not even of the actor but the actor had to play as if they were not fluent in English or if they had problems with English they had to put on a certain dialect or accent and I think sort of this film unfortunately plays into that a bit so they don't really get to speak much and yeah they seem to be the alien here and if if, as if they belong to a different culture as if they couldn't understand the concept of hygiene and the concept of showering and i found that to be unfortunate because those are the only three asian people. I think I remember Lizzie Borden talking about the sort of lack of Asian representation in her film also when I saw her Q&A in Berlin and also saw there was a conversation on the Criterion channel among the, I think the actors and the producers, I think primarily the actors and one of them also said that she was uncomfortable with that scene seeing again. Yeah, And I felt the same even before I saw that. So yeah, I think that is not great. How did you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I I can understand how this sort of a scene hasn't really aged well. I did also see something too related, but perhaps it was more directly related to Borden Flames, but it's still related in general in terms of Lizzie Borden's agenda to try to have a very diverse representation across race, at least, and I think perhaps too she, you know, now we can only say that it's also in terms of transgender, non-binary. These are very these are not present in these two films, but they're very much present in our current life and world. But um, that she had said it was difficult to find people who are of different races, and she had attributed that to the language barrier in one interview, particularly regards to Asians and Latinos did see that she she has expressed regret and said, I would do it differently this time. Overall I do think there are some scenes that are maybe there is one John who implied that he might be from Africa, named Brandy Bongo, by the other working girls. And He comes more than once to the brothel and it's and and it's implied that he has, you know, that he's over sexualized and he is actually, well, he's hygienic. He requests one thing. He requests Listerine. And uh, we see that he's upstairs in the room and he goes through maybe two or three girls because there's a new girl and he often sees the new girls as well. And then the girls also joke amongst themselves that at the end of the day, he goes home. He never comes, but he goes home and then he sleeps with his wife. And I think that's also, you know, another instance of walking that line of stereotype that might not age well. And there's one other one. If I bring it up, it's just rather we hear off screen that there's new, another customer that Don is to see, and Don says, "Oh, I hope it's not the Hasid." And then, meaning the Hasidic Hasidic Jew, oh, uh, which represents, you know, a very ultra conservative part of Judaism. So then after she sees him. She just makes a comment of, oh, I just wish that it wasn't quite like this. And they didn't do this thing with their wives and make them shave their heads and wear wigs. And well, it's okay because it was only half an hour since the Hasids are cheap. Mm -hmm. So not directly enforcing another stereotype, but playing, playing. It's on the boundary. So However, I think what
0: has aged very well, I think this is still something that could be depicted more or less like this is when it comes to the new black working girl that arrives at the brothel, and then a black American customer comes in, and he doesn't really look at her, you know, as if in this place he wants to see the white girls, you know, he wants to see the blondes. He wants to see the image that has taught that have sort of been like the, the images that have sort of been dispersed through media. And yeah, even here seeing a black woman, you know, like that is not what he expects. And I think this is so, yeah, this is so interesting. And I think this is so. The
1: tension in that scene was yeah really powerful. And I do think playing with expectations and desire and image and representation all in this one scene. I mean, it's a thing that has now become really big just in our current discourse on race and race relations and, and race on race, black versus black, Asian versus Asian. I don't know. I mean, I'm reducing it by just saying that, but these sorts of things where you think of crime or just... Hate crime against one's own race, maybe is the best way to 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 sum it up. And just these internalized negative stereotypes or negative biases. There's a lot of tension in this, in this moment, and I think it was a very powerful scene because it depicts something that's also currently in our understanding of race relations in terms of if you are a part of a certain ethnicity or race and then continuously the perpetrating crime or whether the crimes in a legal sense, not necessarily, but just biases or not having perpetrating negative stereotypes towards this the same race or ethnicity or background or even religion or whatever it is. There's this internalized hatred towards one's identity marker, which is um, emerging either just as a field of interest, but also something that's very difficult to navigate because it's never clean cut and often has to do with perceptions of advantage or exposure leading back into really socioeconomic advantages, Mm -hmm. as well as geographical ones, migration, immigration, education, Mm -hmm. It's it's a whole topic.
0: To me, of course, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm a white man, but I'm interested in this a lot. I, I remember reading Tedric Open City and a recurring instance in that novel is that the protagonist is often addressed as brother by other Black man, and it's not clear if it is just out of, you know, out of blackness or if it even speaks to the immigrant experience because he's from Africa originally, like from the African continent, from Nigeria, I think. And yeah, so this there is this ongoing reminder that you are still someone different and that you belong to a certain group. And I think some people don't appreciate that reminder at all. And some people want to actively combat it in in some way. So
1: it's such a, I am Asian American. I look Asian, yet I was raised in America, but there I was raised in America because I was adopted. And thus there are even different implications on how I also view identity. And I think it's so, so everything is very complex in, in general, maybe not a topic for today, but perhaps we shall see other films that will explore identity. It's various facets because it's, I, I think it is endlessly to
0: be continued.
1: Yeah, to be continued and is endlessly fascinating as well. And in the meantime,
0: I would like you to talk on the end because you noticed something I didn't notice when I watched the film, even though I saw it twice by now. and I think it's a very sharp detail that was then I I missed and uh, yeah, so the shift ends, Molly after taking the double shift that she was never you know that she never intended to go through. yeah, what happens at the end?
1: So essentially, she hands the money to her employer, uh, Lucy. <laughs> her employer, this is, I don't even know if this is a generous way to refer to Lucy. I, um, There are many things that we didn't also get to talk about in terms of Lucy and that power structure.
0: Yeah, yeah that's true. But we cannot cover everything.
1: Yes. And um, so she does that and she cheekily asks Lucy if she's ever heard of value of surplus value. And then she tells her that she doesn't plan to return. And in the way that I saw it, I remember I was sort of blown away because she takes her bike and she walks off camera to the right. So this is an entrance or an exit that has never been used before. Almost like
0: into the camera, right?
1: Almost into the camera. And as if she's walking straight offset, which is something that we'd only recently seen in about dry grasses, but as if this was all in a self-contained environment and it was also the feeling yeah, I because in the got.
0: background there is still the we door. see the
1: actual door that yeah. she entered in and all the other johns entered and exited yeah from. so
0: we were n- never aware that there might mm-hmm. be another door
1: yes and i just thought that was very very brilliant and um all along i also had this idea that could in some sense be a, a chamber piece um
0: mm. Yeah, and also because the setting is so reminiscent of a like sitcom setting, mm-hmm. right? So you have the big living room from where different rooms branch off to the outside or upstairs. This is really like a sitcom, it's only lacking the laughter. It feels very stagey there in a way, but of course in the stage you find social realism not so much in the form because the form is still sort of colorful you know it's sort of comedic but the actual things that you see they are in a social realist manner you know as we talked about all the mundane mundane sort of labor they have to they have to do Mm -hmm. yeah so this idea that this was all a stage that she now leaves i find this very fascinating and adds something to the film. Where does it end finally, the film?
1: film? And the film finally ends with Molly returning to her morning routine and waking up in bed next to her partner and with an eye open. Yeah, exactly. So at first there's a the freeze frame and
0: this is while the end credits are running. Then at the very end, almost like a post-credit scene, we see her eyes blink open and we wonder what's going on. As if she is now realizing, oh, she has quit the job. But what happens now? Yeah, what is, how is she now going to make money? How is she now going to finance her uh, artistic endeavors? And yeah, I think it's a very interesting ending. I think so. Of course, you have the book ending, more or less, of the start and the, and the end. But it makes you think, what is she going to do now? And what happened as well is that early in the film. I don't know if it is just she, but also her uh, colleagues, they're given these business cards by the Johns. And earlier in the film, those business cards are thrown away. But at the end of the film, Molly puts it into her purse of one of the more like a kind kind elderly man who asked her as so many others if he could see her outside the facilities. Yeah, so... There's also this option open to her that she might see him again.
1: Yeah, and I think that the way the whole entire film presents and just ends too is that it really gives, it's not a character study at all, but it helps us understand that in this particular situation, that this woman, Molly, ideally, and women like her, should be able to make informed decisions about their body as a means of making money and that she does have agency in this situation, which is very much not always the case in such line of work. However, in this particular one, it's more, I think the film functions as really both all, I mean, I haven't seen regrouping, but all of her films sort of function in this way to consciously Become talking points of alternative modes of being, of living, of interacting with our systems of money and of value, and of just how how just just and other people and our relations with um, with those you know how to and ultimately encourages both a great individual. Perhaps one can say, you know, towards strives towards the individualization and agency while also maintaining respect for all of those who might be different or have different modes of, 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 or lifestyles, et cetera, but also in some form that allows for a version of community or solidarity to exist so that the. For me, at least watching this, it seems, you know, she's not alone, even though she is able to make her own choices, which is, I think, still and not always the case, but it's something that to see represented is somewhat empowering as what could be.
0: Yeah, and there's something very pragmatic about that as well, to, 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 rationalize that as a decision you may or may not make and to decide whether giving your mind that is something that lizzie borden has often said whether you give your mind for 40 hours a week or you give your body for eight hours a week and maybe you know some people might choose the one over the other and vice versa and i think it's very good point to make right like and the film is very pragmatic in that too there's this scene where molly i think says that um you will get used to it and if you don't maybe that's not your profession you know, yeah there's yeah. something simple as that and yeah
1: and and i think i mean i wish i knew more about this but in terms of people who talk about anti-capitalist in terms of anarchist or in terms of the completely anarchist societies or modes, it's highly fascinating as well, because what sex work can enable is that you do not necessarily, like you just said, use your 40 hour work week doing something that you do not want to be doing. Because at the end of the day, what is imperative is that you must make money because that is what we need in order to survive. But fortunately and unfortunately, in some sense, depending on how it is that you look at it, if the body can also be used as a product to make money, this should not be criminalized. Ultimately, Lizzie Borden, I think, must see that there is an inherent rot in the system that forces people to be, you know, to to have to work in general, regardless of what the line of work is. And, um, and it just so happens that this film works to just show, you know, this, is like any other job, there are emotional burdens and ties and difficulties in performing a job, regardless of what sort of a job it is. And it's, I don't, I don't have a solution personally, but it is also to my interest to explore what, what other alternatives do really exist, if any, that are ones that can be feasible to, to allow people to pursue the interests that they have and also survive. I mean, that seems obvious to me would be
0: unionization, you know, and uh, like, of course this doesn't seem realistic at this point in time in the United States, for instance. But even back then, uh, Lizzie Borden was affiliated with uh, the New York, um, not union, but people who would uh, be in support of organized prostitution and the national organization of that time to which many of these regional organizations associations pertained was the national task force on prostitution and when she screened this film working girls she would often have q a's also with uh, sex workers as well so people in the audience could ask them as well, and I think this is a good way of just educating people on this matter
1: yeah, no, definitely, so yeah there I think, are yeah oh no <laughs> sorry no, 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 so there are really so many more things to talk about that I don't think we have time to do so, <laughs> very interesting we well, first we will talk what is Lizzie Borden doing right
0: now? Yeah, maybe, Yeah, you know, what is Lizzie Borden right now? Because, of course, she's still alive and well and she will hopefully be so for a long time. But she hasn't been part of the industry very long because the next film she went on doing after after Working Girls, well, she did also... Well, the next film, one could say, was Inside Out. That was... a. There was a film for the Playboy, I think, for the Playboy. So Inside Out, not to be confused with the Pixar film from <laughs> about 10 years ago. So it's not so child-friendly, I guess. But then the next big thing that she was hired to do was Love Crimes. And that was a film for Miramax, with a company with which she was then affiliated after them picking up Working Girls and Cannes. And, yeah, she had a script that she found very interesting by two writers, but this uh, this turned out to be a disaster because the main actor, for instance, Sean Young, she didn't like the script at all. Uh, she hadn't read it before accepting the role. That meant that the script was changed a lot, also n- not only due to her, but also, due to her. And so it ended up being a film that she didn't want to do, actually. That Lizzie Borden was less and less interested. But at the time, this would have, this was her first film in Hollywood, right? Because these other films are not Hollywood films. And so for a big production company, I think at the time, perhaps six million yeah, or so for budget, not too shabby. And yeah, she she didn't know that she could just walk off basically, but she was also sort of pressured because Harvey Weinstein at the, at the time re- responded to her request of having her name dropped off or taken from the project. Like she would still do the film, but her name would not be associated with the film. And he told her that if she did that, then she would basically, what we would now call, be cancelled that yeah. she would. Yeah. And yeah, so in her own terms, I think she ended up still being sort of in film prison, as she calls it, because to many colleagues, she she, she, she was now known as a complicated woman.
1: Yes. You know? yeah. And uh, I think even Weinstein has just said, well, Lucy Borden, very difficult to work with. Exactly. That's... Difficult.
0: Yeah, that's the term.
1: I mean, I suppose it's really a compliment if you were difficult to work with with Harvey Weinstein. But it's it's I mean maybe we should not say it this way. But I just mean it in
0: yeah. And uh, Sean Young, for uh, instance, the main actor later went on accusing Harvey Weinstein of having you know, harassed her and so on. So yeah, it's a big thing that we are not going to unravel now. So not talking too much about that. What is Lizzie Borden doing now?
1: Lizzie Borden currently teaches, and I believe she has been trying to get another film called Rialto made for the past over 20 years. It originally had the name, Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon. Um, associated with it. However, there were various hiccups along the way and the film has not been in production yet. Yeah, it's in pre-production. It's in pre-production.
0: And that and could pretty much mean anything.
1: It could mean anything. And it's allegedly, there, there are a few different sources, but I believe it might be a period piece based in the 1950s on a woman who runs a movie a, a cinema house who then encounters a man and is somehow later um what's the word when you're per, and persecuted by the uh, and and, and then is persecuted by the Convict? hmm? convicted no 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 no, no. Oh, and then persecuted by the legion of decency because it's also going to potentially be an abortion related film and the legion of decency being the catholic yeah. a catholic body
0: mm-hmm yeah, apparently in the basement they they conduct abortions and upstairs they have the movie theater where they show films that the Catholic Legion doesn't want to be screened. And yeah, doesn't want to be screened.
1: I see. She also published a book called Horphobia.
0: Exactly, yeah. And-, and that's interesting because there are names in there that are known to me. There is uh, Kathy Ecker, for instance, who of course has passed away uh, long ago. But there's a story by her in there that I think wasn't maybe published before. There's also a story by Chris Krause, who wrote I Love Dick, for instance. The term whorephobia, I mean, that puts it well. I think there's still a lot of education Uh (laughs) that people need to put themselves through
1: mm-hmm. yeah to go hand in hand with the term a slut shaming so. oh yeah 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 yeah
0: exactly mm-hmm. so, yeah she is an editor and she also still or again one should say writes for art forum mm-hmm. yes outlets
1: still maintains her interest in art criticism and i think has long-term plans to do something on cuban artist anna mendieta and other works that she'd like to realize And um,
0: Yeah, I think that brings us to an end, right? I think we would both be very much looking forward to another film.
1: Oh, yes, yes. So I wanted to just thank you for choosing this. It was very interesting, very fascinating period, a lot of turmoil, a lot of, you know, revolutionary spirits, a lot of different sorts of conversations that are happening that have really influenced... Our lived reality and a lot of conversations that still need to occur because not much like the future predicted has in in Born in Flames has necessarily changed in terms of perception. I think one thing to change things legally, it's another thing to change them at home. It's also even when we have the awareness and mindset that certain things should be different, there should be more parity. It's not always the case. You have these various things in terms of domestic work that's done by women. So now there's a conscious idea that men do know that they should participate more in domestic work, but still women wind up doing more, the majority of the domestic work at home. And then other power dynamics and structures, because it's not always perhaps clean cut men versus females. It's also who has the power and how are we replicating these power dynamics in in a way that to a disadvantage to women or to marginalized groups in general? Oh, so I wanted to keep in line with our theme of sort of doing decade. And I wanted to introduce...
0: Maybe because I don't know if listeners are aware of this, but we basically, at first, without really intending it, so for each film, we picked a different decade. We have 2010s, I think, with... Western, and we have Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. There was 1979. Now we have the 80s with Working Girls. And her. And yeah, what is it going to be next
1: So time? this time I'm going to shovel us back into France under the occupation of the Germans, 1940s. And Marcel Carné's Les Enfants du Paradis, written by Jacques Prévert. It's a film that I've always, that that I revisit every three or four years. And I was very curious to revisit it with you quite long. We do have actually the presence of a sex worker, but this is barely related at all to the film that we've discussed today. And I... Hope that we will have find some many things to talk about in it, but it's more about it's, it's a very problematic time to be filming a film. And it's more for me, I guess, a very beautiful story of desire and the politics around that. And so it's quite, well, you'll see. Yeah, you'll I'm see. looking
0: forward. It's a film I've never seen. Of course, I've heard a lot about it, but yeah never got to see it so it's a good occasion for that and we should say at the very end here first of all thank you Eliana as well for doing this with me and that we are not so certain about when the next episodes are going to be published you'll see when they hit you but as of now we cannot commit to it Fix schedule. It's very time-consuming to do the research on this podcast and we have other commitments as well. We'll leave it at that.
1: Alright, well, thank you again and we look forward to making the next one.
0: Okay, bye-bye.
1: Ciao, ciao. Bye.